So this is now our third session on uh, uh, the spirit of the Antichrist. And I want to start this morning by kind of bringing in some new information and just some stuff that I've been uh, thinking a lot about this week and researching and also sort of reminding you of kind of our approach. So first of all, definitely love questions. Uh, I realize that every teacher has a different style and some of you have not followed my teaching so you're just sort of kind of getting used to me so I talk fast and I obviously I use a lot of visuals but don't let that intimidate you at any time raise your hand ask questions Um, obviously we don't do that during the worship service which is more of a sermon than a teaching time but during the Bible study time please don't hesitate to ask questions make comments if something's unclear uh, feel free to, to, to pause and I'll try to to get to you uh, quickly. Um, but I wanted to start by sort of taking a step back and saying, what's the big picture here? Why are we talking about this? Uh, you know, we're touching on a lot of themes in this study. We're obviously touching on the end times, which we've talked about. We're touching on angels and demons and the spirit world and the cosmic struggle, the hidden battle between God and Satan. We're talking about deception, which is what we're going to get to today. Um, the big picture idea behind this study is to basically say that, uh, start with a few uh, premises. First of all, we know that uh, Satan is ultimately working towards establishing a one world government and ruling the world in, in great deception. Jesus talks about that. The Bible certainly talks a lot about that. So we know that's where we're headed. We also know, a second premise, that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the King of Kings, is going to come back someday and, and bring Uh, the new kingdom in making all things new, all things right and just and perfect and holy, ruling with a rod of iron. Uh, And he's going to do that after the seven-year tribulation period. So one way or the other, we're headed towards a one-world government. Uh, It will be uh, led for the first seven years, or at least for seven years prior to Christ coming back by the Antichrist, uh, but ultimately by Christ. So if those two premises are true, and they are because the Bible teaches us about them, then what does that mean for us today? Well, we started out by looking at the fact that the Bible says deception is going to get worse and worse, and uh, that as we look at the sky, we can discern the weather. In the same way, we can sort of look at the stage being set and see certain indications of deception that will be worldwide and widespread during the Antichrist regime, but that are sort of beginning to see seed form in seed form today. And so that's the big picture. We're going to come up with, uh, so far I've got seven uh, characteristics of the Antichrist, the spirit of which is already uh, here today. And the Bible talks about uh, the spirit of the Antichrist. So I call this the gathering cloud of deception. Now, what's the practical benefit of this? Uh, a lot of times people say, well, I get that it's in the Bible, I get that these are theological truisms, but so what? You know, how does that affect me when I wake up every morning? Well, for that, and I was doing some research this week, I had a lot of some, some time in the car this week, and I was listening to some, some of my favorite uh, teachers and podcasts and just sort of connecting the dots, and so I thought I'd kind of go down this road for just a couple minutes here at the beginning. A key verse that we all need to know, especially in these days, is Proverbs 22.3. A prudent man foresees evil and hides himself, but the simple pass on and are punished. 
Now, you've probably read Proverbs many times. I'm sure you've read this verse, but you probably skipped over it like I did for many years without really taking the time to understand this timeless principle. Uh, because it uses words, at least in the New King James here, like prudent. Well, I mean, that's kind of a fancy way to say wise, right? You want to be wise, right? Uh, it uses words like evil. Well, we tend to think of evil in a moral sense, but evil in the Hebrew Old Testament can just mean trouble, difficulty, hardship, danger. So I thought it would be helpful to look at a couple of paraphrases of this verse. For example, the New Living Translation puts it this way. A prudent man foresees danger. And what? Takes precautions. Now that seems obvious, right? It's natural. If you're, you know, if you're walking down a, a train track, just enjoying a leisurely afternoon like you might have when you were a boy and you're out chucking rocks and just and all of a sudden you hear a whistle and you look around behind you and off down the track behind you you see a train coming what are you gonna do you're gonna get off the track right you're gonna take precautions and so this is a principle that applies in any number of life situations but it also applies in a broad big world sense if we see trouble coming, we should take precautions. There is a connection between this principle and the end times, but this principle transcends what we're studying here about eschatology. For centuries, people in different parts of the world, in different cultures, under different regimes, have faced horrific, difficult circumstances. In the first century, we're reading about this in our study through Hebrews during the worship hour, those Christians... Uh, we're facing difficult time, danger. And the ones that were able to best navigate it from a pragmatic perspective were the ones that understood it, recognized it, and took precautions. Uh, think about in our modern times, in World War II, the ones that were able to survive the Holocaust were the ones that were part of you know, the hidden underground bunkers and the places where they could sort of outlast this regime, and then a lot of people managed to, to make it through. So we have to differentiate between the practical and the spiritual. Spiritually speaking, faith is the victory, like the old hymn says. We walk by faith, not by sight. We live our days every day trusting God. But you don't want to go so far in this pseudo-spiritual concept of, oh, I'm just going to trust God, that you become a fatalist, that you just say, well, whatever will be, will be. I'm just going to trust God, and you don't, you know, take practical precautions, you know. You, you, and we do this in other areas of life. You get up every morning and you brush your teeth, right? You don't just say, well, if I'm going to get a cavity, I'm going to get a cavity. Whatever will be, will be. I trust God. He's going to protect me. No, you, br you brush your teeth. You, you pay your mortgage. You do things that, that have natural consequences, if you don't, if you're not wise. So, so don't think that this study or these principles are somehow impugning the concept of faith, right? We trust God in everything, but that doesn't absolve us of the logical responsibility to prepare. So again, back to this paraphrase, a prudent person foresees danger and takes precautions. The simpleton, that's a, again, just another word for fool, goes blindly on and suffers the consequences. So we're couching this study in terms of both uh, you know, studying information that the Bible has to say about what lies ahead, and we want to, to know things that 
begin with the rapture and then, you know, the signing of the peace treaty, the tribulation period, the seal, trumpet, and bold judgments, the abomination of desolation, the battle of Armageddon, the second coming of Christ, the millennial reign of Christ, uh, the battle of Gog and Magog at the end of uh, the, uh, the millennium. All of these things are important things because the Bible has a lot to say about them. But there's also a sort of here and now pragmatic nature to this study. These, these are troubling times. This, these are unprecedented times. The world paradigm changed over the last six months. And if you're not taking the time to really be prepared, it's going to catch you off guard, regardless of whether the rapture happens in our lifetime or it might not happen for 100 years. These are just general principles. So uh, in the world of those that, uh, you know, prepping, preparedness gets a lot of airtime these days. It's become kind of a real fad, if you will. Uh, it's nothing new. Again, the Bible talks about it. Proverbs was written a thousand years before Christ, and it's talking about being prepared. Um, so in different cultures and different eras, people have you know, talked about being prepared. It's just logical. You, you, know, you put up food in the winter so that you have food, or in the harvest so that you have food in the winter, right? Just common sense. Um, but in this current sort of concept of preparedness, you've got people you know, b building bunkers, and uh, I mean, it's amazing what's out there. If you've not, you know, looked into that, just spend a 20 minutes looking into this new wave of, you know, bunker building. People are buying old missile silos from the Cold War that the government's selling and turning them into these incredible um, uh, bunkers. I've been watching this for 10 years, and it's just evolved to where, you know, they've always had these communities where someone will buy a huge bunker and turn it into a community and then for a buy-in of a quarter of a million dollars you can be a part of the community and when the world comes to an end you can flee to that bunker and only certain people can get in. They're trying to have a doctor and a lawyer and an engineer and a school teacher and a preacher and a dentist and you know basically you know end of the world scenario type stuff. But now it's gotten to where you can even, there's even timeshare bunkers. I read about a guy who's built uh, 150 of them across the country in strategic locations. You buy in, and then wherever you are when the end of the world happens, you go to the closest bunker and show them your token, and, uh, you know, just like you're with, you know, some timeshare organization, and you get, you get access. So um, in that world of preparedness, there's a lot of discussion about what they call PAW, P-A-W. It's an acronym that stands for post-apocalyptic world, right? And there's a lot of pessimism because everything they do is based upon woe is me, the world is coming to an end, doom and gloom. Uh, you see people on uh, TV, Christian evangelical uh, teachers, uh, you know, merchandising this, this uh, gloom and doom concept. They, they call them merchants of doom. They're capitalizing on fear. Uh, it's this, it's this uh, drip feed of dread, you might call it. And, and so they capitalize on people's fear. What I want you to understand is that's not my approach at all. My approach to studying the end times is one of profound optimism because we know who wins in the end. We know that the Bible comes full circle to a pre-fall Edenic state when Christ comes back. I mean, read Revelation 21. It's a, an incredible picture of beauty. When time shall be no more, when the world is a sinless perfection once again, 
and, uh, and it's just an amazing story. And so I, I'm optimistic, but I'm not foolish. I'm not a simpleton. I understand that we need to be wise and recognize that things are happening very rapidly. And, you know, we don't want to just say, que sera, sera. We want to say, God, how can I wisely prepare? Because God is not through with you, and He's not through with me. He wants us to be around long enough to share the gospel with as many people as possible. Okay? So preparedness and this concept of taking a look at the gathering cloud of deception and what's happening in the world geopolitically, that's not pessimistic from my perspective. That's not doom and gloom. It's, it's reality. So I'll give you one more paraphrase, and then we'll get to where we left off. Uh, this is from Eugene Peterson. He said, a prudent person sees trouble coming and ducks, right? But a simpleton walks blindly on and is clobbered. So there are many people today, and this gets right to the heart of our subject of deception, who are blind. And you see that word blind, that's a Hebrew word that's used in almost every translation. It's, it's the manner in which they're walking. They're walking essentially with their head in the sand. And many people today are approaching the world and, and future events in this way. And they're going to be sorry. So we want to understand God's plan of the ages. And we ought, want to also, as Jesus said, understand the signs of the times. And then we want to live our lives according to biblical principles in a way that will uh, take both into account. Okay. And so that's what we're talking about. So we, we've said that, of course, there is a spirit of the Antichrist, which is already in the world. And uh, we know that many Antichrists have come through the ages. This was written in the late first century uh, under the inspiration of the Spirit, the uh, first epistle of John. And here we are 2,000 years later, and many Antichrists are still among us. Second Thessalonians 2, Paul puts it this way, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. The old King James says the mystery of iniquity, basically sin, evil, lawlessness, abject disregard for what is true and right. That's already here. Uh, now, we often apply this in the sense of a moral code, and we see things like homosexuality, gender neutrality, abortion, attacks on the sanctity of life, and all of these things, and that's all part of it. But another part of it is that Satan and his legion of demons are fast at work trying to set the stage for his takeover. Now, you've heard me say that we don't know for sure uh, whether this one world government will be inaugurated after the rapture or before the rapture. We always have to be careful to separate speculation from what we know the Bible says. And all we know the Bible says is that the Antichrist will take the helm of a one world system both politically, economically, and religiously. But we have nothing in the Bible that precludes that one world system from already being in place prior to the rise of the Antichrist. So as we look around us, we certainly see the stage being set for a one world system, a cashless society, a uh, one world leader. You know, why do, they, why do we think uh, the, the story of the pandemic, and again, it's not about the pandemic, it's about the response to the pandemic, right? Remember what one political leader uh, once said, I won't mention his name, but, uh, you know, we never let a good crisis go to waste. So whether it's an engineered crisis or an organic crisis, doesn't really matter. What matters is what's happening. 
and we see world leaders coming together to say this is a crisis that no one nation can handle on its own. We need to come together, designate a world leader, and all give up our national sovereignty. And that's what they've been arguing for for centuries. Later on in our study, I'm going to give you lots of quotes. Some of them go back 100 years uh, of people saying we need to get rid of American sovereignty and start with a global, uh, global uh, one-world system. So uh, we, we need to be aware of these things and kind of be prepared for, uh, for what's coming. So the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. We've talked about the origins of the Antichrist. Uh, he gets his power from Satan. And then we started out by looking at the first of seven manifestations of the spirit of the Antichrist. And the first one was pretense. Pretense, which we basically said is essentially deception. Pretense means a claim not supported by fact or a false show of something. Uh, it's basically deception. And so uh, deception is the number one uh, overarching uh, you know, gathering cloud right now as we see this Antichrist uh, system uh, being kind of laid out. So then we talked about uh, the great conspiracy. Satan, again, has been trying to take over the, the planet ever since he got kicked out of heaven. He's doing that in conjunction with his demons. One-third of, of the angels fell with him, remember, and they now are called demons. And he's also doing it with human agents. And this is the greatest conspiracy of all time called the Luciferian conspiracy. Now, we, we kind of talked last week about this idea of the, the demons or angels, and, and uh, we will you know, pick up with that uh, this week. But we said... You know, the demons are who he's primarily aligning himself with and conspiring with. Remember, Satan is not omniscient. That means he does not know everything. God is all-knowing. I was dialoguing with someone by email today that sent me a question from our radio show and gave, giving them lots of scriptures about the fact that God is omniscient, right? Uh, Acts 15, known from eternity past are all of his acts. Known to God from eternity past are all of his acts. So God knows everything. Um, but they, Satan doesn't. He's not omniscient. He's not omnipresent, meaning everywhere present at all times. He can only be in one locale at a time. All right? Now, he's a spirit being as an angel. Remember, all demons are fallen angels. So he's not subject to the constraints of time and space. He can move from one place to another, kind of the Star Trek approach, right? Beam me up. But he can't be in both places at the same time. That's different. Uh, and he's not uh, omnipotent, meaning all-powerful. So God is all-powerful, nothing that God can't do. Uh, Satan is not. So he has to have help. And his attempt to deceive the world and to take over the world is, in, is part of a conspiracy uh, with demons. So we looked at you know, the angels. We talked about how the angels were created beings. Some of them fell. With Satan, we talked about the unfallen angels are the good guys and some of the different kinds of angels. And then we just introduced the bad guys, the fallen angels. And uh, we want to pick up with some characteristics of these fallen angels today. Remember, one-third of them are bad guys, if you will, fallen angels, demons. Two-thirds of them are angels, ministering spirits, which the writer of Hebrews is talking a lot about. Remember, uh, for those of you that are uh, with us in our worship our, the first century Jewish believers in the late 60s were very infatuated with angels and spiritual things and mystical things. 
And they had sort of elevated angels to a level of superiority over even Jesus Christ, their Savior. So the writer of Hebrews comes along in the first chapter, talks about how Christ is superior to angels. And uh, he's going to talk about that in the section we're going to look at uh, today as well. So then we talked about among the fallen angels, you can break them down even further to those that are loose and active and doing Satan's bidding today in this cosmic struggle, to those that are imprisoned. And some of those that are imprisoned are temporarily imprisoned to be let out uh, later and involved in the final end times battle. And some of them are permanently imprisoned. They await the lake of fire, which Jesus said is prepared for the devil and his angels. Right. So uh, we left off with loose and active demons, and let's talk about the kinds of some of the kinds of demons that we see in Scripture. First of all, there's the prince of demons. That's Satan himself. Some translations call it the ruler of demons. The Greek word is archon. It just means prince or ruler. Uh, he's also called in Ephesians chapter 2 the prince of the power of the air. Okay? He's the top dog. Uh, and then you've got principalities. These are all from Ephesians. Powers, rulers of darkness of this age, and spiritual hosts of wickedness. Principalities are the highest rank. Uh, but then you've got sort of this governing structure among the demons that Satan uses. So he might say to one, hey, grab an army and go over here and I want you to do this. And to another, he might say, I want you to do this. Now, we don't have time, at least not this morning, uh, to get into <coughs> sort of uh, reasons why bad things happen. Um, there, not everything that happens is because some demon did it. Okay, Sometimes it's just a natural consequence of your actions. Sometimes it's God's testing our faith, James 1. Uh, sometimes it's just the trials of life. Um, we live in a fallen world, and it's an inequitable world, an unjust world. And so sometimes bad things happen to good people. It's not always a demonic attack. I want to be clear about that. You see these guys on TV, these uh, sort of sensationalist end times prayer, uh, preachers. Many of them are the purveyors of doom and gloom that I've talked about. And every time there's an earthquake or a fire or a disaster, oh, this is a demonic attack. And then some of them go to the other extreme and say every time there's an earthquake or a natural disaster, it's God judging sin. And what I like to say is it could be. <laughs> but let's just be honest enough to say that we can't always say for sure. We don't have the mind of God. So I don't know if, if that was direct determinism where God said, I'm fed up with you know, America, so I'm going to send a pandemic. Or whether it's just natural causes, or whether it's just demonic, whether it's an evil attack, there could be any number of reasons. And on our website, I've got a message I did some time ago. I forget the title, but essentially it was Why Do Bad Things Happen? And I, I touch on some of these from Scripture, biblical reasons why sometimes bad things happen. But for our purposes, we need to understand that in this gathering cloud of deception, when the spirit of the Antichrist is sweeping uh, the world, uh, that demons are a big uh, part of that. So now, uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, 1, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, expressly says that in the latter times, who can tell me what the latter times are, the last days, if you will? Right now, and is it like, Right now, just the last few years, or right now what? Correct. That's right. Since Christ died, officially since the birthday of the church, which was uh, the day of Pentecost, 
in Acts chapter 2. But this, this era, this age, the church age, the mystery of the church, is the last days. And I showed you before uh, a chart where you know, you've got the different eras um, and different times in which God interacted with man differently, not different means of salvation. That's a common mistake that people make. God's always saved people the same way, by grace through faith. Only one way you can be saved. Um, but clearly He interacted, say, with Adam and Eve in the garden differently than He interacts with us. And He interacted differently with Abraham than He interacts with us. He interacted differently with the children of Israel. As I said, if you didn't bring a goat to church this morning to sacrifice, you understand the concept of God's stewardships and His his, you know, rules for life, right? And so we are living in the latter times. And in these latter times, what do we learn? Some will depart uh, from the faith, giving heed to what? Deceiving spirits. Notice spirits there is a little s. That's not talking about the Holy Spirit. It's talking about demonic spirits and doctrines of demons. Doctrine just means the corpus of teaching, what, what the information that is being taught, okay? So demons are getting people to latch on to false information, take it to heart, and then make decisions based on it. And so what I challenge people to do and remind myself constantly because it's so hard in the world in which we live, you know, we need to be reminded of this more and more. It is very, very important and relevant for today. And it's kind of like the old Japanese proverb, if you want to know about water, don't ask a fish, right? Well, if you want to know about deception, I mean, it's kind of hard to strip away the layers and try to be objective and get back to the Word. And so I remind myself of this all the time, and that is think critically. Don't just swallow up everything you hear hook, line, and sinker. And as we go through this series, you're going to find that many of the trusted sources that we have used over the years as a source of reliable information are absolutely corrupt and being used of Satan to propagate a lie. So you've got to be able to think for yourself lest we become victims of uh, these deceiving spirits. Uh, Jesus himself reminded us that the devil was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth. Because there's no truth in him. In fact, he makes it even more clear. When he, the devil, speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources. He is a liar and the father of it. And Jesus, in this context, was speaking to scribes and Pharisees uh, after a woman had been uh, caught in adultery. And he's just reminding us of this timeless truth that Satan is a liar. And so anything under his regime is going to be uh, untrustworthy. Uh, the Greek word planao means to deceive. It's used 39 times in the New Testament. And uh, it means to lead astray, to cause to wander. So a lot of times when we see the English word deceive, we think of it only two-dimensionally. We think of it in terms of accepting wrong information. But the Greek word planao goes further than that. It's not just to get you to accept false information, but with an agenda to lead astray and cause you to wander, right? Um, so, um, you know, 1 John 5 says, We know that we are of God, but the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. The whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. One of my goals in this study is to sort of remind you of, of 
uh, all of us, of, of some of the false information that we have accepted through the years. Now, we could think of some biggies right off uh, the top, right? Uh, most of the world believes that um, a human being inside the womb of its mother is not a human being, and therefore it can just be slaughtered. Most of the world believes that uh, we're not created in the image of God. We evolved over millions of years from a wet rock. And, and, and monkeys are our ancestors, right? Most, most of the world. These are some big lies, but there are also a lot of other lies that uh, you know, I have come to realize over the last 13 years of going down this rabbit hole. I first sort of started studying this in 07, and I won't get into the story of how that happened, but, uh, and it's been a wild ride. And it's been an invigorating ride as I feel like I, there's so much information out there that I believed that has now been proven to be a false. So again, back to 1 Timothy, back to 1 Timothy 4. In the latter times, we're in those times. We're in those times right now. And uh, we also need to remind, remember that this has implications for evangelism. The prince of the power of the air is also the God of this age who is blinding men's hearts to the gospel. See, Job number one for the church, Jesus tells us even before he ascended to the right hand of God, is to go into all the world and make disciples. Right now, we are God's envoys, God's chosen people for this time. He's used other groups in times past. For, for many years, Israel was center stage in God's plan of the ages. And they were the ones that were to bring glory to God and draw people to Yahweh. Uh, to, he used Noah, we could say. Uh, today it's the church. If we're not doing our job of pre presenting the good news about salvation from the penalty of sin through faith alone and Christ alone, no one else is going to do it. <laughs> but we need to recognize that at the same time that we're on offense, you know, Satan has an offensive team, right? So he has a game plan. So we're, play, we're playing offense when we're out sharing the gospel and allowing the Spirit of God to convict people of their need for a Savior, to convict people of sin, righteousness, and judgment. At the same time, sometimes we have to play defense and we have to combat Satan's deception. Now, we can't argue anybody into salvation. We can't convince somebody that they need to be saved. That's the Spirit of God's work. But Paul tells us the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. So what is our job is to faithfully, accurately, and urgently proclaim the gospel. And as we do that, we are, uh, the Spirit of God is sharper than, any, the Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. The Spirit of God takes the Word of God and pierces hearts. And in, in, in time, God, uh, many people uh, trust in Christ, believe the gospel, and they're saved. So there's a battle going on, and we, we need not forget that at the crux of it is this notion of evangelism and and salvation. But depravity is a degenerative disease. And there's a, a concept called normalcy bias that we all suffer from, which is that we tend to, to have a very narrow view, uh, a very myopic view of life. And we, we intellectually understand historical realities of despicable evil and regimes and stuff. I'm going to talk about that in our second hour today. But somehow we think that that is not going to happen now or somehow that that was back then and it's not happening now. The Bible teaches something completely different. Depravity does not get better with time. 
Okay? It gets worse with time. And I've used this verse many times, but uh, just to come back to it again, evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse. Specifically, deceiving and being deceived. This has all kinds of implications. It means it's getting easier and easier to be deceived. It's easier and easier to deceive. The ones doing the deceiving are actually getting deceived more themselves. You know, uh, passionately believing something doesn't is no guarantee that it's true. So I, I honestly believe many of the purveyors of deception today really believe that. They're not, you know, sitting back laughing and thinking that, oh, they're going to pull one over on us. Satan is, but many people really believe they are deceiving and being deceived, right? And I've talked to many of them on a lot of different issues, you know, global uh, warming, climate change, geoengineering, things like that, and, and um, it's hard to convince some. You know, uh, Mark Twain said it's easier to fool someone than to convince them they've been fooled. That is so true. That, that's a biblical concept. Not that Mark Twain was a Christian, but I mean, it's easier to fool someone than to convince them they've been fooled. Once they've bought into the lie, they've been deceived, and then they're going to perpetuate that deception by deceiving others. We talked about how, and so by the way, when was 2 Timothy 3.13 written? I mean, I'm not looking for an exact date, but give me a, a century. First 67 A.D., the first century, right? So we're talking now 1,900 years later, give or take. And if, if in his day, under the inspiration of the Spirit, he was warning us that things are getting worse and worse, imagine how much worse they must be today than then. And so we see this uptick in spiritual things. I mean, we could spend all day talking about uh, otherworldliness and the, the cosmic struggle and the things that are even within just the last three years have, uh, have become part of the common milieu of our daily discussion. There was an article in December uh, issue 2017 of the New York Times that basically affirmed everything that many researchers of this type of thing have been saying since the late 40s. You know, we saw a resurgence after World War II of paranormal, cosmic, incredible spiritual stuff going on. And it's just increased and increased and increased, which is one reason that I think we're getting closer and closer to the rapture. Again, I can't set a date. I'm not, you know, trying to be a date setter, but it's self-evident that things that started happening, now they were always going on for 2,000 years. There's always been a cosmic struggle, and every now and then, you know, the unseen realm breaks into the seen realm, and you get a glimpse of it. But man, from 1947 on, it's just blown up and now everybody's talking about it and and we find out the government's been studying it for 50 years you know it's the same thing they always do deny 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 until the evidence is so overwhelming that they have to say well of course we've been doing that we've been doing it all the time what are you talking about you know did you have a question Yeah, great question. So his question is, uh, and I like the way you phrased it, are there pockets of improvement or pockets of revival, I call it, uh, and he referenced the first and second great awakening. Absolutely. 
I don't want to make it sound like there, you know, we, there's no hope. The Spirit of God is alive and well and actively moving on planet Earth. And amazing things are happening all over the place. There are people getting saved. There are revivals breaking out. But in terms of the, the general trajectory, remember, there's a principle in Scripture called the remnant principle, which is that God always works in the minority. When will God's people and God's plan be in the majority? Not until Christ takes the throne. I mean, think about it. So at the rapture, the church is rescued from this present evil age, caught up together to meet the Lord in the air, harpazo, it's the Greek word rapture. And, uh, but that's a minority. So, uh, so let's say there's 7.5 billion people in the world. Let's just randomly pick a number. I'm not, this isn't biblical, but say a million or a billion people are raptured. So 1 billion is one-seventh, roughly, of 7.5 billion. So minority, remnant. Then uh, there's a remnant that's going to come out of the Great Tribulation that gets saved when they hear the gospel. Revelation 7 talks about people from every nation, tribe, tongue, and language getting saved. And, and, but, but they'll, too, be in the minority. Then Christ comes back, Matthew 25, and in His own words He says, I'm going to separate the sheep from the goats. And to the goats He says, Depart from Me, uh, into the uh, fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And to the sheep he says, Come ye blessed of my father. And for the first time since the days of Noah and his family, for the first time at that moment, everyone on planet earth will be a believer and, and it'll be, they'll will be in the majority when Christ comes back. And so, and in Noah's day, of course, it was the, him and his family were the only righteous ones. Everyone else was destroyed. But, in general, God works in the remnant, and so we are outnumbered. That's why, you know, I often remind people: if you're if you wake up and you look and you're in the vast majority, you better think about it. I mean, are, is that just a bandwagon, or is that, you know, uh, and uh, you know, sometimes the majority just means all the fools are on the same side, you know. So, uh, but yes, that's a great point, and I'm so glad you know you brought it up because. You know, God is at work. We're, the nature of this study is we're sort of focusing on deception and how to be wary of it and how to be prepared, Proverbs 22.3. But we not, not, dare not forget that God is still alive and well and He's doing inc incredible uh, things. So any other questions at this point? So we are more deceived today than we are yesterday. We're yesterday and we will be more deceived tomorrow than we were today. Here's that chart that I uh, talked about. So you see uh, in yellow the church age. And so from God's plan of the ages, this really is the last days. The only age left is the kingdom age. And the kingdom is not now. If you read the description of the kingdom, nothing about today corresponds to the biblical concept of the kingdom. Um, this is Satan's world. But Christ is going to come back. It's rightly His. We're going to talk about that in our Hebrews study. And when He does, He's going to usher in uh, the kingdom. But if you look at, use this as sort of a template, we could say sin entered the world about here, right? And since that time, things have gotten worse and worse and worse in terms of depravity. 
and it's going to reach unprecedented heights during that little seven-year period that's sort of uh, inset there above the screen uh, called the tribulation when the wrath of God is poured out on the earth and the wrath of Satan, the word wrath is orge, uh, of Satan is poured out on the earth and it's, you know, we haven't seen anything yet like what it's going to be like in the years, months, and days. You know, Revelation 16 is the uh, bold judgments. The old King James calls them the vile judgments. And it leads up to Armageddon. And even though in charts, like my charts, it's kind of hard to put things in uh, chronological or, or in, uh, you know, time perspective, that, that those bold judgments all take place, in my estimation, in the final 24 hours, maybe 48 hours. They're all related to the campaign of Armageddon, and it's just like, you know, you got the seal judgments that over the first three years are just, you know, pretty steady, boom, boom, things getting, and then all of a sudden the Trump, you, you know, you, you open the seventh seal, and it's seven more judgments called trumpet judgments, and, you know, you, you get those, and they're, you know, in the second half of the tribulation, but boy, you, it just comes with more rapidity, and then by the time you get to the bulls, it's like, bam, 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 bam. And it's just finally Christ comes back. And we're going to read about that passage in our worship hour today. And I just, I get so passionate every time I read that passage because he's coming back with a sword proceeding out of his mouth to tread the winepress of the wrath of Almighty God. And on his name, on his thighs and his robe is written the name, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And, and it's going to get better. A better day is coming. But, you know, it's going to get worse uh, uh, before that. Uh, so, if as we talk about depravity getting worse and worse, what we're essentially saying in this study is that deception uh, is getting worse and worse. And in that final seven-year period that I just talked about, Jesus addresses this in Matthew 24 and 25, which is all about the tribulation. And listen to the number of times he cautions against deception. Now, this isn't, we won't be here then, we've already been rescued, but for the generation that will be alive... You know, they need to heed this warning, for especially Israel. Take heed that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, saying, I'm the Christ, and will deceive many. Many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. In fact, he says deception will be so bad that if it were possible, even the elect, talking about Israel there, saved Israel, would be deceived. Um, so we'll stop there because I want to have time, a couple minutes here for any questions or comments. But I do want to pick up next week with the, the demise of the Antichrist. And then uh, we're going to talk about uh, just some of the examples of pretense that we see today. So I hope, you know, by, by now you've, you know, I've been able to prove the point that Satan is the master deceiver and that there's a spirit of deception that he is purveying today. I want to make sure we, just to stick it in his eye, talk about his demise someday when he's destroyed and actually eternally tormented. But then I'm going to say, knowing that, having studied that, what are some things that we see today that are evidence of deception? So, but before we, uh, we'll get to that next week. So before we close, any uh, questions or comments or thoughts about anything we've talked about this morning? Yeah, yeah. And, and the contractions start not so big and pretty far apart. And then and when you think of birth, most people think, oh, great, a baby's being born. I think that should be our perspective. We want 
Absolutely. Pretty painful. And more quickly painful. Yeah, so he, his, for the video, his question or comment was about thinking of the, the analogy that several writers in the Old Testament and the New make about labor pains on a pregnant woman. Now let me elaborate on that for just a second. In the context, both in the Old and the New, that's talking about this tribulation period as you just applied it. A lot of times people will say they'll apply it to the present age and they'll say, oh, there's labor pains, so we must be getting ready. Well, certainly there are other biblical bases on which to sort of look at the sky, discern the signs of the times, and saying, hey, the stage could be being set. But specifically, the labor pains is a term in the Old Testament that refers to the, the great day of the Lord's wrath, the, the 70th week of Daniel, the time of Jacob's trouble, the overflowing scourge, all of those things that refer to that seven-year period. And in that sense, it has quite a bit of relevant application. First of all, as you, as Jeff just said, it's it's a perfect illustration because labor pains do start but then they intensify and Jesus says in Matthew 24 that the beginning of the tribulation is the beginning of the labor pains the end of the labor pains is him coming back and we're going to see that same analogy used in Revelation when it talks about you know Christ being born in the first century and then it looks back and then it looks forward to Christ coming back which he does at the end of Revelation um, but another illust- another practical help of that illustration is that we've talked a lot about how the rapture is imminent, meaning that it can happen at any time. There's nothing that has to happen before the rapture. But the second coming is not imminent. It's going to happen at a prescribed time. And so we know that it's going to happen seven years after the signing of the peace treaty with Israel, Daniel 9, 27. So so yet Jesus says, to that future generation that will be alive during the seven years, hey, he comes like a thief in the night. No one knows the day or the hour. Well, how do you reconcile that? And I get this question all the time. People say, well, won't they be able to tell when it's going to happen? And my answer is no. They won't, they'll be able to tell generally in the same way that a, person, a woman that gets pregnant generally knows that nine months later they're going to have a baby. But they don't know the exact day, right? We've had six children and you know, we've some of them have been induced, some of them came naturally, but we don't, none of them came naturally. I'm in big trouble. <laughs> no, so, but you see my point, right? So, that certainly Israel, if they're reading the Bible and reading the Old Testament prophets and reading the words of Jesus from the Mount of Olives, uh, they know, hey, it's within seven years, he's coming back. But they won't know the day or the hour. Because even the signing of the peace treaty, it's not, you know, when you see these ceremonial signings of bills and things, the president usually have 10 pens out there and they sign one letter of their name with each of them so they can give pens to all the dignitaries present as a keepsake for this momentous occasion to, you know, save the planet from global warming or whatever thing they're signing. Even that is ceremonial. The actual document that is governing, that is put in the archives, is something they signed back you know, behind the, behind the doors. This is all symbolic. So we're not going to know exactly when the pen hits the piece of paper and the peace treaty is signed. So you're not going to be able to start your stopwatch and say seven years later to the second, Christ is coming back. So there's still going to be a bit of an unknown. And that's all Jesus is saying in the Olivet Discourse is that be ready. Be ready. Don't be deceived. He's coming. And you'll, these are the signs that, to know that He's coming, but you, you'll, many will still miss it if they're not ready. Yes?
Yeah, that's a good question. And obviously, you know, we all wanted the question. The question is, why, does, why this plan? You know, why do we go through this 6,000-year plan of the ages? Why didn't, when Satan rebelled in heaven, why didn't he cast him into the lake of fire then and be done with it? Well, um, I mean, I don't have the mind of God. So all we can know is what he's told us and revealed to us in his word. We could speculate on reasons. Um, I believe, and, and we'll get to this chart in the coming uh, weeks, that God's ultimate plan is to bring himself glory. And somehow it brings him more glory to think about people willingly believing the gospel rather than, you know, and, and people in the face of persecution, trusting him. Somehow all of this plan brings him more glory. Essentially what we're asking is the same question that people have asked for ages is, you know, why evil? You know, what's the source of evil? Why does evil exist? And how do you reconcile evil with a sovereign God and all of these things? And the best we can say, not having the mind of God, remember he, uh, Romans 11 uh, let me get there real quick. says this, great kind of catch-all reminder. Um, and it's in the context of uh, what about Israel? Does Israel have a future? Has God forsaken Israel? And so forth. But in that context, he concludes in chapter 11 by saying, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. So I know that sounds like a cop-out. But I'm saying it not as a cop-out. I'm saying it because that's what the Bible says, that we just don't know what, what his plan is. But he knows. But the best we can say is that ultimately it's about bringing him glory. And somehow this brings him more glory. Great question. All right, well, let's, uh, we're out of time. And uh, let's take a break, and then we'll come back together again uh, for worship. Thank you, guys.